Good afternoon from the Kalex Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Link, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. Well, that's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, chimps and deep freeze. In addition, Dr. Jason Wright will join us to discuss extrasolar worlds. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Rockatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rock Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Here's our story and our uh, animal fact of the week, actually. Oh, do we have animal facts of the week still? <laughs> I thought it'd been long gone with the dodo. <laughs> they have a nasty habit of coming back. It's like a bad Ed Wood film. So it turns out in Austria, chimps have now legally been declared non-human. Why are they not afforded the same legal rights as us humans? So this came from a uh, case in which an animal rights group wanted to declare this chimp, actually a famed member of a zoo, to be a human in order for them to gain guardianship over it. But for whatever reason, the judge in this case has rejected the notion that a chimp could be a person. One of the reasons why they wanted to have this chimp declared as a person was that they wanted to make sure that whoever gets in charge of it would not have the right to sell him. Okay. (laughs) But unfortunately, it doesn't count with animals. Well, I'm sure there are other ways of preventing that besides declaring him a person. Sounds like it could be a in Hollywood film, maybe starring Robin Williams. <laughs> He's in every other piece of crap I've seen lately. <laughs> anyway, so very fascinating uh, stuff. If you want to find out more, just uh, look in... Look up uh, Austrian law. <laughs> Well, it might not matter if the chimp is a person or not, especially if the Earth goes into the deep freeze. I've always wondered if our president was a chimp or not. Well, researchers have postulated that the Earth has gone into large periods of deep freeze, what they call the snowball Earth hypothesis. Right. New research is suggesting that, in fact, large amounts of carbonate in the oceans might actually prevent the Earth from going into the deep freeze. And uh, and this is work led by W. Richard Peltier. What they found is that by cooling global temperatures, this allows the oceans to absorb more oxygen. Right. And that combines with the carbonate to produce more CO2, which then results in a greenhouse effect, warming the Earth, preventing it from going into the deep, deep freeze and speeding along the process on the geological timescale, creating more of a slush ball Earth. Is he suggesting that this whole global warming trend is actually a good thing because it's preventing? They're not suggesting any such thing. They're just saying that the carbonate solutions in the ocean might in fact help move the Earth from deep freeze quicker into warmer temperate climates. In case you're interested, in the case the next ice age comes, how quickly it's going to end. Uh-huh published in a recent edition of Nature. And that was this week's review of current developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. In a few moments, Dr. Jason Wright joins us to talk about extrasolar planets. So stay right there.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, joining us right now is one of our very own here from UC Berkeley is Dr. Jason Wright, who will tell us a little bit about extrasolar planets. Uh, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us here today. No problem. So I understand you'll be leaving us and going to Cornell for your postdoc, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what your thesis was about here. Sure. Uh, I've been working with uh, Professor Jeff Marcy here at Berkeley uh, for the last several years, and I got my thesis uh, finished in 2005 on extrasolar planets. Mm -hmm. So we look for planets orbiting other nearby stars, trying to find systems something like our own solar system. Um, most recently, we announced that one of the stars that our group has been following for 20 years now has five planets orbiting it. Mm -hmm. We recently discovered the fifth planet around this star. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of these are giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune around our sun, uh, but this star has five of them. And so even more than our sun has of these large giant planets. And so can any of these planets be a replacement for the Earth once the uh, sun you know, starts to swell up and we get fried? Well, like the outer planets in our solar system, um, they're these giant balls of gas and ice, so they don't have any solid surface like the Earth does. Mm -hmm. um, also, most of them are not in the sort of places where you'd want to go because they're either much too close to their star, so they're too hot, or they're too far away, so they're too cold. Mm -hmm. But there are a few uh, in this Goldilocks zone, this so-called habitable zone, where mm -hmm. you might be able to have water. And so if they had a moon or something like that with a solid surface, it would be a nice place to go if you could ever get there. But these things are very, very far away. Yeah, and so this five-planet uh, system, how far away is it? That one's 41 light years away. Okay, so at the max, at the... Minimum, it takes 41 years to get there. <laughs> That's <laughs> Assuming right. Assuming that we can go at the speed of light. That's right, which we're very far from. Even if we wanted to send a probe without mm -hmm. any people on it as fast as we could, it wouldn't get there in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. It would have to be something that our great-grandchildren thought about or something. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, so, you know, what happened some of the more interesting uh, discoveries about these extrasolar planets? Uh, what, have you gained any interesting insights from their formation? Oh, yeah, we've been we've now discovered over 200 of these things. Mm -hmm. So we know about around, you know, stars all throughout our galaxy, over 200. And these uh, are mostly these in planets. the Milky Way. They're all in the Milky Way. Yes. Okay. Um, and since there's 100 billion other galaxies out there, that means there's going to be that Yes. Much so one of the most more. important things we've learned is that most stars, well, what we've found is that a few percent of stars have detectable planets. Mm -hmm. But one thing to remember is that we're only just becoming sensitive enough to detect a planet like Jupiter. So mm -hmm. if we were looking at our own solar system from far away, we would just now be starting to announce that mm -hmm. there's a planet there at all. Mm -hmm. So so far, we've detected planets around a few percent of stars. The real number is probably much larger. So it's likely that most stars in the galaxy, I think, have some planets around them. And so you know, detecting objects so far away probably requires a very sensitive instruments. Um, could you tell us maybe some of the ways you use to detect these planets? Sure. There are a few ways that astronomers detect planets uh, these days. The way that we use here at Berkeley was the method that was used to detect the first planets around other stars. Um, we take a spectrum of the star with a large telescope. We use the Lick telescope mm -hmm. uh, in, at, on Mount Hamilton near San Jose. Mm -hmm. And we also use the Keck telescope in Hawaii. The so these are twins, right? Twin uh, telescopes. 
Oh, there are two Keck telescopes. That's mm-hmm. right. We use Keck One, which mm-hmm. is one of the two out there on Mauna Kea. Um, and so these large telescopes collect the light of the star, and then we put the light um, at Lick Observatory. One of the things is a prism, and we basically spread the light out into all the colors of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. The atmosphere of the star will actually remove some of the colors. So when we look at that rainbow, we see there are missing colors. Mm-hmm. As the planet orbits the star, the star makes a little tiny orbit a little bit around the planet, too, because the planet has some mass. Right. And so the planet tugs on the star just like the star holds the planet in orbit. Uh-huh. As a result, the star moves very slightly back and forth in a little circle okay. as the planet goes around it. When it moves away from us, by the Doppler shift, all of the colors are shifted toward the red. And so we can tell oh. from those missing colors that they've all gotten slightly redder. I see. But this is a very sensitive measurement. The speeds we're talking about are meters per second. Mm-hmm. So the star physically is not moving very fast. These are, you know, you can throw things at meters per second. Right. Um, and so these are very subtle Doppler shifts to try to detect, especially uh, in visible light, which is the wavelength we use. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for example, with a five-star system, are you going to detect five different shifts in the Doppler? Yes, we see. We have to decompose five different signals. And so what we see is that every few days it will go back and forth. And then on a longer time scale, every couple of weeks, it mm. goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then every month it goes back and forth. And uh, for the outer one, it's every few years it goes back and mm-hmm. forth. So um, it's a very complex system to try and unravel. And it takes a lot of computing time to really make sure you've got the right answer. Well, it's really inspiring. Um, and studying these other extrasolar systems, what does it say about our own solar system and perhaps where it might end up? Well, one thing that we've really been interested in is how unique our solar system is. Is it that all the other stars also have solar systems like ours with Mm -hmm. maybe rocky planets like the Earth that can support water? Or is there something strange or unique about our solar system? Mm -hmm. One thing we've found is that most of the planets we've detected um, are not in systems like our own. Most of the planets tend to be on very eccentric orbits. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll, over the course of their year, get very close to the star and then very far away. The planets in our solar system are all on nearly circular orbits. And that's unusual. And that appears to be unusual, although very recently we've detected a few planets that seem to be good analogs for Jupiter. Mm. They are apparently the largest thing in their solar system on a circular orbit out uh in orbits sort of 10 years long, Jupiter's orbit is 12 years long. Um, And so we recently announced a particular planet that we just saw the orbit complete that seems to be a good Jupiter analog. And there is plenty of space interior to its orbit where we don't see anything. Oh, I see. And since we aren't sensitive enough to detect something like the Earth, Mm -hmm. there could easily be an Earth-like planet inside. So the solar system's architecture uh, isn't common. But it doesn't look like it's unique. Mm -hmm. In a few hundred or a thousand stars that we've been studying, we have found a couple examples like it. So we we know that galaxies typically have a disk-like structure, um, presumably in order to conserve angular momentum. Do solar systems have the same phenomena? Yes. As when a star forms, it forms from a large, maybe roughly spherical ball of gas. And as that gas collapses, as you said, to conserve angular momentum, um, it will flatten into a disk. Mm -hmm. And that disk will feed that inner star as it grows. Mm -hmm. But the leftover remnants in that disk, when the star is finished forming, will themselves um, uh, collapse in different ways to form planets. Mm -hmm. And so we're learning more and more about how that planet formation process happens by studying these new 
systems. And as you said, because it's in a disk, all of the planets will tend to orbit in a plane. Mm. So they're not going every which way around the stars, we think. We think they're all like in the solar system in the same, orbiting in the same plane. Mm-hmm. You know, looking at all these different extrasolar planets, most of them are in an elliptical orbit. What about comets? Can you observe comets in these other systems? It's easiest for us to detect planets that are very massive. Mm-hmm. So the mass of Jupiter is sort of par for the course for what we can detect. Okay. The least massive objects we've detected are at least five Earth masses or so, mm-hmm. um, which is much less than a Jupiter mass. So we're getting very sensitive. Uh, comets, though, are tiny compared to the Earth. So there's no way we'd be able to detect them um, based on the gravitational tug that they put on their parent star. Mm-hmm. Um and as you said, they tend to be on elliptical orbits. These things are so small, they get pushed around easily by the planets, which can tend to knock them out of their circular orbits and send them on these very elliptical orbits. And what about the asteroid belt? Is that also similar material that the planets are made out of? Yeah, we think so. We think the asteroid belt probably is the leftover remnants of the planet formation process. Mm. And this is material that, for whatever reason, probably having to do with Jupiter's gravity, um, never managed to become part of a planet and also never got cleared out because usually when you have comets and asteroids flying around the solar system, sooner or later they get too close to a planet and the planet kicks them out of the system. But those asteroids in that region are in particularly stable orbits and apparently can just last there for billions of years. I see. And what about moons? Uh, you know, they tend to look or in, in some cases behave as planets as they're spherical are, are they actually planets that have been captured in the orbit of the Earth and Jupiter and Saturn? Some moons in the solar system are captured objects. And we think that because when we look at them, they look an awful lot like the asteroids or Kuiper Belt objects near that planet. And mm-hmm. since they look just like those other things and they tend to be on very strange orbits, sometimes retrograde backwards orbits, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear they were captured. But um, most of the larger moons probably formed around their planet mm-hmm. uh, under some other moon formation process. Um, detecting moons around other star systems, though, will be very difficult because, again, they're so small. They're also very near the planets we're detecting. So the only real way you could think about trying to detect a moon is if you had a very close-in planet, and some of the planets we detect are very close to their stars, mm-hmm. that happens to pass right in front of the star. Right. And when that happens, we can actually see the light of the star dim mm-hmm. as this planet eclipses part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty rare event, but we know of a handful of examples now, and there are people looking for many, many more of those. It's conceivable that a large enough moon might be detectable by that method if it were orbiting one of those planets. And speaking of the formation of these planetary objects, you mentioned that they came from dust and gas that were uh, originally you know, spinning around what you know, became the star. Is most of that dust and gas still out there, or were they actually captured into these planetary objects? I guess what I'm trying to say is there's some more material out there to, even, to produce more planets. So the material that produces a planet is usually all bound to the star when the star is forming. Mm -hmm. So we don't have material from in between the stars falling onto the system to make the planets. Mm -hmm. Stars tend to form in regions where there's already a lot of gas in one place. And some piece of that cloud will collapse. Mm -hmm. And all of the gas there will either form the star or the planets or get blown away in some manner. 
And so what you start with is the material that forms that system. But there's plenty of stuff out there that can form more planets and more stars. But everything in the system should be basically the same age, made from basically the same stuff. So looking back, how, how did you become interested in astronomy and what really inspired you? I don't know. I've always wanted to be an astronomer. As I mean, as far back as I can remember, I just I wanted to be an astronomer. So I don't really know why. I I guess I'm really fortunate that it turns out that I like astronomy and I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. Because there's no reason that, you know, as a second grader I would have had any idea what it really was to be an astronomer. But I do enjoy it. And so that's lucky for me, I guess. Great. And for those um um hobbyists out there who look into the sky, uh Pretty often, you know, what are some of the interesting things that uh, you would want them to have a look at these days? Well, um, I guess it depends on how serious a hobbyist we're talking about. Um, if you've just got a pair of binoculars and you want to see what's out there, um, there's a comet out there right now. I'm not sure how bright it is anymore, but a few weeks ago it was actually right. a naked eye comet. Yes. Um, and there are plenty of amazing things that you can see with uh, binoculars. Um, some people really get into the hobby and start buying CCD cameras and start doing astrophotography and putting together color composite pictures of the brighter nebulas and stuff like that. Mm. Now, with um, these planets being detected that are passing in front of their stars, there are some amateurs who are detecting planets themselves. Hmm. So when a planet goes in front of the star, it's a very subtle change in the star's brightness. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, even commercial hardware CCD cameras are sensitive enough to detect that dip. And so a careful amateur these days can detect the planets that we've already detected. And there's a project run down in Santa Cruz called transitsearch.org where amateurs are being used to find new planets. And one of the most recent transiting planets detected, um, it was an amateur who contributed some of the first data to show that it was really going in front of its star. So amateurs can contribute in an important way to this science by uh, looking for and discovering new planets. So now that you're uh, moving on to Cornell, are you going to be pursuing a different project or something similar? I'll be working with a different group who's trying to detect planets using a similar technique to the one that we use at Lick and Keck. Mm-hmm. So instead of using optical light and the colors of the rainbow, we'll be working in the near-infrared. Mm. And we'll be using a different kind of spectrometer that spreads the light out. It's this, um, it's this experimental new instrument that was uh, developed at Lawrence Livermore, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and we use interferometry there to try and detect the um, radial velocity, the radial motions mm-hmm. of stars. And we'll be looking for planets at Cornell uh, around much sm- stars much smaller than the sun. So these are very faint objects. You can't see them in the night sky. They're very red. But the advantage is they're very light compared to the sun. So the planets pulling on them pull them a lot more. And so we should be able to detect even smaller planets than we can detect right now around stars like the sun. So we're hoping to find rocks, things like the the Earth, Mm -hmm. orbiting these very dim, faint stars. Mm -hmm. Great. And, you know, um, I just came back from the science policy uh, program in D.C. I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about funding in astronomy or astrophysics? You know, why should the uh, public care about these developments? Well, I think astronomy is really blessed as sciences go because it captures the public interest uh, in a way that, that keeps it at the forefront. 
agencies like NASA, which are primarily dedicated to putting things in space and engineering and aeronautics, <laughs> make sure that they spend a good portion of their budget on things like the Hubble Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. Because then these astronomical images, these amazing images that only something like Hubble can produce, um, really serve as, you know, literally posters for the agency. Um, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing that the that the public finds what we do so interesting. I find it so interesting too. There are really two funding channels for astronomy in the government. There's NASA, uh, which generally focuses on astronomy done with spacecraft from above the atmosphere. And then the National Science Foundation um, is the other major channel mm -hmm. uh, that just funds science in general across the country, uh, including astronomy and astrophysics. Great. And speaking of instruments, with the Hubble, uh, I, I think the latest news is that they will be kept in service for another few years. What's your thoughts on uh, the Hubble telescope? Do you think it should be replaced or should it be renewed? Well, the Hubble telescope is a fantastic instrument, and it's done things that we never could have done without it. There's a new replacement in the works called the James Webb Space Telescope, um, which will be an even better instrument, but that's many years off. It would be a real sh shame to lose the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, that's not to imply that it's cheap. The Hubble Space Telescope is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and you, if you ask some scientists, how would you like to spend this money to get the most science you could, they might tell you not to build a space telescope, but instead to build, you know, 100 Keck telescopes or however much that money would, would purchase. Mm -hmm. But the way I look at it is that that money wasn't necessarily for science. That was money to put things in space. It was money for NASA to use to promote the American space program. Mm -hmm. So as long as we're putting big things in space, I love the fact that it's a telescope. And I love the fact that they're going to service it and keep it going. It's really down to its last leg or last gyro or... You know, there's a lot of things wrong with it that need repair. But right. if they can get up know. there before it uh, before it finally kicks the bucket, we'll get many more years of great science out of it, which mm. is just a wonderful way, I think, to spend our space dollars. Great. And with these new instruments, um, do you think it'll enable us to observe even more objects that we were not able to observe before, or ex more planets? Yes. Um, getting Hubble back uh, fully operational will help us discover all sorts of things. The nice thing about Hubble is because it's upgradable and repairable, mm -hmm. uh, every time you go up, you've built instruments that are much more sensitive than the previous generation. So every right. time you go up there, it's like you have a brand new telescope. Okay. So, yes, the a new instruments. New exactly. So the, the, the instruments that are going up to replace the current instruments will be even more powerful and allow Hubble to do things it couldn't do even when it was operational, fully operational before. I see. Great. Well, that's really exciting. Um, I guess we're running a little bit out of time here. Are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or astronomy? Oh, um... I would just encourage anyone who hasn't taken the astronomy courses offered by the department to take them because we've got a great suite of faculty teaching some really great courses. Everyone knows Alex's Astro 10 class, Alex Filipenko's Astro 10 course, but there are a lot of others as well um, to study the planets and cosmology and, you know, come in and see what people at Berkeley are doing and learn about astronomy because, you know, it's a really fascinating topic, and I never get tired of it, and we at the department really love to teach it. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us here today. No problem. And you were just listening to Dr. Jason Wright discussing extrasolar worlds. This is the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. When you wish upon a star 
Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires will come to you If your heart is in your dream No request is too extreme When you wish upon a star as dreamers do Fate is kind She lives to those who love The sweet fulfillment of their secret longing Like a bolt out of the blue Fate steps in and sees you through When you wish upon a star Your dreams come true Now it's time for the question of the weekend. Right here in the studio, we have our very own Tokyo Kid to give us the answer. Tokyo Kid. Ah, thank, thank you, Bakari. Uh, it's been a while, Tokyo Kid. Uh, where you been? Around the world, it's an exciting adventure. You do seem to find adventures all over the place. They're very exciting. <laughs> Does it bond you to the situation whenever you're in it? There's just too much bonding going on. That's why my foot keeps dragging. Well, we're, we're curious, what is the hydrogen bond? Ah, hydrogen bond. You know, it's a very special type of bond, and thank God we have the hydrogen bond. Otherwise, the water will evaporate at a much lower temperature, and we can never take our showers. We all need our showers. Yeah. So the hydrogen bond is a special interaction between the hydrogen atom, particularly with the oxygen, nitrogen, and the fluorine. They are not covalently bonded, but a special interaction between other molecules causes an extra force of attraction between the molecules. And so, for example, the boiling point uh, will become the higher. Wow. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Lane. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.